We're going to go ahead and get started this evening because it's 6.31. And so, judging by last week, we may need all the time. So, um, Nathan is out of town this week. Um, so, I am filling in, but I have his notes. So, I just didn't want you to get worried. So, um, and I Don't feel like... students always get rowdy with a I know. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous, Tom. So... Uh, um, so yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna just keep moving right along um, with the notes. So we'll finish up what we did not finish last week. If you have part three, you have everything you need for tonight. So what he did is he moved over the sections we didn't finish last week into the new part three, as well as a little bit of additional information that was part of part three originally. Does that make sense? So if you don't have part three. You will need it. If you thought, well, we're just going to finish up part two, uh, we will, but it's on part three. So just make sure you got that. Um, so if anybody does, Miss Leah's got extras there. Before we get started, let me do one more thing. As far as being able to watch the videos or to listen to the podcast. So those are now on a particular place on our website. Um, so let me just give you the directions. Can I do that? Maybe next week we'll have a, maybe a QR code or a URL that might make it easier. But let me just give you the directions if I can. Okay, so if you go to the Taylor's FBC website, um, I found that the website works better on a computer to get this than your phone. You may have found it to be different, but I had a little bit of trouble on my phone. But um, Taylor's FBC website, look at the tabs at the top and click on Connect. Connect. Under Connect, you'll see a list of ministries. The very bottom is Institute. Click on Institute. That takes you to the Institute page. There'll be a few different um, kind of like articles as you scroll down. Look for the word podcast and click on that word podcast. When you click on podcast, that takes you to the podcast page. Now, when you first open it, it's going to look like it's only the Sunday morning sermons. Scroll down and you'll get the Wednesday night Bible study. Scroll again. And then you'll get the Institute. So it took me twice. I was like, oh, it only gave me the sermons, you know. And then I was like, wait a minute, you know. And I scroll, and there it is. So, um, so let me just do it one more time, just in case. But Taylor's FBC, and it works great. It really does. I'm very thankful um, because the site looks good, and it's got the um, easy access as far as, like, getting to the, to the podcast and the videos. Taylor's FBC website, connect. Click on connect. When the Connect pops up, it'll have a drop-down window. You'll look down to the ministries, find Institute, click on Institute. It goes to the Institute page. You may have to look down a little bit, but you'll see Podcast. Click on that word, Podcast. When you get to that one, scroll down past the sermons, past the Wednesday night study, and you'll see Institute. It has the first and the second already there. So now we know usually by around... Uh, I'm looking at Sherry. How You don't know either. I'm trying to, it takes us a few days. So if you go up there tomorrow, you're probably not going to see the third one. So it just takes us a few days to get that uploaded and on um, the website. But already the first two are there. The third one's going to come up. And then you'll see all the additional ones below, but they're not there, of course. But they'll be uploaded as we get them. All right. Any questions? All right. Praise the Lord. Okay. All right, so tonight, let me just, as um, Nathan likes to begin, just with the mission of the Equip Institute, which is right there under introduction, um, the Equip Institute exists to equip our members or the members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. Um, we are in the middle of a 12-week seminar, this one right here, going for this semester as on the Christian story. Um, last week, we explained, the, or not we, 
I like how he included me there, but not. Um, Nathan explained the canonization of Scripture, and then he shared some general interpretive principles and then began that discussion on how to interpret the literary genres found in the Bible. And so just as we begin tonight, just I mean, we don't have much time, but um, just by way of review and just reminder, I would love to hear from you for just a second. If there was anything last week, because I found last week to be extremely good, just on understanding the canonization of Scripture. And so I'd love just to hear from you if there was anything that for you stood out that gave you insight or understanding um, or something that you liked so much you decided to share it with somebody else. So is there anything that just kind of stood out to you last week that you're just really like, man, that was impactful or that was just good to know? Well, it helped open up a door for me somewhat because I've had explained to you before, but who were the they that said, this is, this is the, the Bible, this is how it is. Yes. And that opened that door up some. It's still difficult grasp sometimes, mm. but yeah, that, that, that is great, Barry. Thank you. Really, that was a good, I think somebody asked that question last week, right? So that was good. That was a good question uh, to understand the day. So that, that was good. Yes. Yes. I'm like looking at it going, <laughs> for you at home. Um, so, yeah, so what was impactful um, was just the they, to understand who they are, who were the ones who were making the decisions and working together to determine the canonization, why these 66 books would become our Bible today. That was excellent. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. The fact that he, he said we, that these they... The communities weren't as far away as we might imagine because the area was actually small. Yes. He used as a, an example Greenville to Knoxville, not Greenville to California. That's correct. So yes. That simplified it, somewhat. That was excellent. So just to understand that the the amount of time that it would take to travel to be with one another to discuss these things was actually doable. Very good. Excellent. One more, just anything that was insightful, good, thankful. I'll give one just in, just to kind of wrap it up. Just I thought it was interesting that um, what was the impetus to the canonization of our scriptures was heresy, Marcionism, right? So you think, well, that's terrible, but it was something that God used to drive the canonization of the scriptures we have today. So I just thought that was intriguing, and I haven't heard that since 1997 when I took the course in seminary. <laughs> so I was like, I remember Marcian, you know, like I haven't heard his name in a long time. But just to hear that again and just be reminded of that was just like, it was just, it was good. Just remember like, man, that's what, forced that movement to make the, to go ahead and make the decisions, these will be. And then the qualifications. This is what's going to qualify the scriptures, right? And then the people who are a part of that, as Barry said, the they. So I thought, I thought that was really, really good. I just enjoyed it um, last week. All right. Tonight, we're going to finish um, out the genres. So we're going to continue on in those genres. And then we're also going to look at meaning and interpretation and application. So that's where we're going tonight. So as we begin, I'd love to just pray over our time if we can, and then we'll jump into the rest of the notes. Lord, um, oh, Lord. First and foremost, we love you. We're thankful tonight that we are your children, and we are in this place, and we are together. And so, Lord, we praise you and we thank you, Father, that you called us unto yourself and then you called us to be here tonight. And so, Lord, as we begin just to continue this conversation, Lord, and about interpreting your word rightly, I pray that you would just guide us tonight. 
And I'm thankful, Lord, for the knowledge and understanding that Nathan now passes on to us that we might continue to grow in our understanding. And truly, like it says in our mission, that we might rightly think about you and your word so that we might live rightly before you and in your world. And so I pray you would help us to even do that tonight. Lord, help us to think rightly about your word and how to interpret your word so that we might live out before you and in your world your word rightly. So Lord, we pray this for your glory and in your name we pray these things. Amen. All right, guys, so let's, um, apocalyptic writings. So as we continue the genres, we've looked at narrative. Now here we come to apocalyptic writings. The apocalyptic writings are intended to unveil, or that Greek word there also means to reveal. So to unveil or reveal how God is providentially working behind the scenes and will continue to work in the future to bring about his sovereign purposes. Apocalyptic writings are characterized by these seven themes. And so we're just gonna look at these seven themes and just understanding the themes of apocalyptic literature will help us when we think about interpreting apocalyptic literature. So this is a little bit in just a minute, so don't, don't flip your paper over. <laughs> Lindsay's like, oh, so don't turn your paper over yet. But when you think about apocalyptic writings, and this will help us when we think about these themes and we read these themes, when you think about apocalyptic writings in the scriptures and you think about books, because there's different apocalyptic writings that are within other writings, but predominantly in books, what do you think of when you think of apocalyptic writings? Revelation. All right, so that's one, right? We have Revelation, predominantly an apocalyptic book. What else? Number two, what's another book? In the scriptures, it's in the Old Testament. Daniel. Daniel, yes. So those are our two books that are predominantly apocalyptic, right? Those are predominantly, that's in your notes on the backside. That's why I didn't want you to turn it over yet. But I do think it helps you to have those in mind, to have Revelation in mind, and to have Daniel in mind as we look over these seven themes. Because I think they'll spur some thoughts from Revelation or Daniel if you're familiar with those. So let's look at the themes that are characteristic of an apocalyptic writing. First, the expectation that God is working in unexpected and dramatic ways to bring our present fallen age into complete alignment with the perfect age to come. Um, one of the resources that Nathan um, recommends, are there 40 questions on interpreting the, the Bible by Plummer? This is the way he writes that. And I just like the, I like the way he said this. It's the in-breaking of God. I like the in-breaking, you know? So God's breaking and in-breaking of God into this present age to usher in a qualitatively different existence in the age to come. Like, so literally, God is breaking in. So a theme in apocalyptic literature is God is breaking into this world and making it what it will be, right? Or pointing to what it will become. So that's the first theme. The second theme is the use of angelic mediators to communicate God's message to a chosen human spokesman. So the key point there, he uses angelic mediators, right? an angelic mediator, and he's communicating God's message to a chosen human spokesperson. Number three, the human spokesperson is allowed to see into the heavenly realms, thus gaining a glimpse of God's behind-the-scenes intentions. So just thinking about Revelation, you think about John, and all of a sudden he gets to see, right, behind-the-scenes, um, behind God's curtain. Four, symbolic visions and dreams, which takes you back to Daniel, that's creatively describe both current hidden spiritual realities and future divine interventions. And then number five, another theme that you see in apocalyptic literature, vision of God's coming judgment. 
God's coming judgment on human sin, including the final judgment at the end of the present age, which again, revelation, right? You get a picture. Number six, another theme is warnings of future trials of God's people they will face. Trials that God's people will face. And lastly, a theme that we see in apocalyptic literature is encouragement. Praise the Lord. We needed some. Right? I mean, I was just talking about judgment, a bunch of stuff, you know. Encouragement for God's people to remain faithful and to persevere, looking to the future with hope that is rooted in faith. So when you think about apocalyptic literature and the why, why we're looking at these genres is that we want to be able to interpret them rightly. And one of the ways we interpret rightly is to understand them. And the themes help us to understand apocalyptic literature rightly. So just understanding some of the themes that are, are in apocalyptic literature are helpful. Um, the paragraph there, which we've already kind of touched on, numerous extra-biblical writings are apocalyptic. But two canonical books fit this genre, Daniel, Revelation, good job. Other biblical writings include apocalyptic passages that are embedded within works that are mostly historical narratives or prophecy. So there are other passages, but predominantly Daniel and Revelation. So just the principles. Here's the principles for interpreting apocalyptic literature. Um, and before we look at the principles, it would be really good to just stop, and this was one of Nathan's points, and just admit that these are arguably the most difficult books or passages of Scripture to interpret in the Bible, right? So I think we just have to stop there and say, we just have to admit that these are arguably the most difficult Scriptures to interpret that are in the Bible. But there are some things that help us. One, the themes we just walked through, just understanding the themes of apocalypse. So the next one here in our bullets, interpret apocalyptic passages in light of other scriptures and not vice versa. That's a really good principle, right? And one, I'll say this, we're gonna see this throughout, that scripture is the best interpreter of scripture, right? It's the most trustworthy interpreter of scripture. So scripture helps us to interpret other scriptures. In this point in particular though, he's saying don't interpret scripture, other scriptures, by the apocalyptic literature, but let the other scriptures help give meaning and understanding to the apocalyptic literature. That's a really good distinction when it comes to, because the apocalyptic literature is the part that we don't understand, or is, like we just said, most difficult to understand. So don't use the most difficult to understand passage to interpret other passages. Use the passages that are most understandable to interpret the passages that are least understandable. Does that make sense? That's a really good point when it comes to apocalyptic literature. Second, be very cautious in how closely you identify symbolic language with past or present events. When you're trying to apply those and, and think through what is the symbols and what do they mean, and you try to apply those to certain events and times, you just have to walk very cautiously in doing that. Very cautiously. Three, remember that at least certain symbols are clearly pointing to the future, meaning they are not necessarily happening today, but they're pointing to something that will happen in the future. Very important, the apocalyptic literature. And then, though apocalyptic writings often point to the future, there are principles, right? There are many principles that can be applied to present faithfulness. And then the last one there is just that reminder. Again, we have, we've admitted these are difficult and some of the most difficult passages. Therefore, we want to, as we interpret these passages and these books, we want to do so in a certain posture. And that's one of humbleness and teachability and agreeability. So we want to do it humble, teachable, and agreeable because they are difficult. They are difficult. If you have any questions about apocalyptic literature, Nathan Finn will be back next week. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not even going to open it up for questions. So <laughs> I have done my part <laughs> right there. So <laughs> that's why I have the whiteboard tonight and a marker. 
I was like, I'm coming ready. If they have questions, we're just going to whiteboard them right here for Nathan. <laughs> Take a picture, send it to him. <laughs> Be ready, Nathan. <laughs> so I'm ready for y'all. I'm just going to tell you, I am not a theologian, and I do not have a PhD in Christian history. So, um, no, I defer greatly uh, to Nathan. So, um, but yes, there's many questions around apocalyptic literature, but these are good principles um, as we try to interpret them um, faithfully and rightly. Let's go on to wisdom literature. Whew, let's get on to wisdom. <laughs> let's get on to wisdom literature. Oh, man, wisdom literature. So let's look at some of these. So wisdom literature collects the sayings of those whom the biblical authors consider to be wise. Love, people love the wisdom literature. You may be one of those who just loves reading through the Proverbs on a, week, you know, on a monthly, annual basis, or the Psalms, right? Not Psalms. Don't count that one. Sayings, delete that one. Not Psalms. Uh, the sayings may be debates between wise and foolish characters, short sayings about wise living, or reflections on significant issues. So Job, we get that debate between wise and foolish characters, right? Uh, Proverbs, we get those short sayings about wise living. And then Ecclesiastes, we get reflections on significant issues of life. So Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes um, are part of this genre. And you may be thinking, what about Song of Solomon? And the Song of Solomon is also wisdom, but coupled with poetry. So it's wisdom and poetry together. Um, many other books of the Bible contain individual wisdom statements that should be interpreted similarly to wisdom literature. So you may get wisdom statements in even other parts of the Bible. Um, but those books in particular are what we consider the wisdom literature. Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. So let's look at a few principles when it comes to interpreting wisdom literature. What helps us to interpret wisdom literature? First, remember that this genre focuses upon general principles and then normal patterns more than promises general principles, normal patterns, not as much on promises. And that's important because the prosperity gospel leans into and sometimes heavily and puts more emphasis on these wisdom literature statements to a point they're not really there to hold. They're more general, they're more practical than, more, than promises to to, to hold on to as far as like for prosperity. Um, let me give you just the idea of the general principle for just a minute. And I'm going to go to Proverbs. Um, you don't have to look there. I'm just going to read it here. But Proverbs 10.4, just a general principle. So general principle in 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Right? General, good. Let me give you another one. Uh, six, 10 through 11, kind of a similar theme. Um, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man, right? General, general statement, good and wise statement, right? Um, but not always a promise, as if that would be true in all cases, right? Because there's cases where a person, right, may be slack and sleep a lot in what they would call a sluggard, right? But he was born into wealth and therefore will live all his days in wealth and die in wealth. What happened to that passage? Right? He's not living in poverty, right? He's living in lavishness, and he's a sluggard. No, it's a general principle, right? So that's the, that's the idea. It can't be carried so far forward that then it becomes almost a hard and fast promise. If you don't work, you won't, or 
If you do work, you will, because there's passages like that. If you work, right, then you will gain. Except if you're a slave and you work really hard and gain nothing. What happened to the passage? General principles not to be held on to as overarching over all things. So that's just some examples of how to take it as a general principle and not so far that it would be like a health and wealth. If you do this, this will happen. Not necessarily, but in general, yes. Which is what I tell my son all the time. <laughs> Don't be a slackard. You will be poor, you know? So, or I will, because <laughs> I got to care for him. So I was like, don't. No, I'm just kidding. I, I do do that, actually. But, um, so, <laughs> so, I think it's a good general principle, right? It's wise. And therefore, I do teach that principle to my son. Um, often, number two, often wisdom literature is best interpreted thematically rather than sequentially. It's not going to sequentially develop. It's just themed, like, like the Proverbs are thematic, right? You might find different themes throughout Proverbs, but it's not building upon another. So they're not sequential. Grouped. Yeah, and many times grouped thematically. That's a great question. Good. I'm glad I had that one. So uh, <laughs> do you have to go to the board? Uh, interpret wisdom literature in light of other scriptures. Again, that principle is going to be always in front of us. Uh, it can help provide a framework for rightly understanding and applying principles and those patterns that we see in the wisdom literature. Um, if sayings seem to contradict themselves, recognize they are speaking to two different valid principles that can each be applied faithfully depending upon the circumstance or the context, okay? So let me give you an example of that. Proverbs 26, 26. And this is like four and five, all right? 20, 26, four and five. Four says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Don't answer a fool, for you yourself will be a fool in casting your wisdom before him, right? Number five, verse five, answer a fool. Okay, according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, do I answer him or do I not, right? Well, it actually comes down to response, doesn't it? If he responds, Answer the folly, right? It'll make him wise. If not, don't continue to do that, right? He scorns wisdom, and you'll be a fool for giving it because he's not following it. That's why I stopped giving my son wisdom. <laughs> it's hard to teach Johnny these things. I'm just kidding. <laughs> not Johnny. Just kidding. <laughs> not Johnny. Johnny's sharp as a tack. So, all right, so those are some principles when it comes to interpreting our wisdom literature. Um, general principles, often grouped thematically rather than sequentially. Um, let other scripture help you interpret because it'll help us give the guiding principles and help us see the principles and patterns. And then just remember, even if they look to be contradictory, they're not. It's just being on their context or their circumstance. And let me just add a couple other little things in here that might be helpful. Um, Ecclesiastes. If you're interpreting Ecclesiastes, um, a good verse that helps to interpret the whole of Ecclesiastes. So if you've studied under E3 in the narrative and you know there's a thematic statement that helps kind of understand the whole in light of kind of why that book has been written or that story has been written, everything's applying through the thematic statement. Ecclesiastes is kind of like that. It has a thematic statement. If you were to read Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, you can interpret the rest of Ecclesiastes from the last two verses because everything's under that theme. That's where he ends up. 
So it kind of guides the interpretation, right? So that's just a help. Sometimes that's helpful to have that as your guide or your hedge. The things he's saying will always in some way reflect those, those last comments. Um, Job, kind of a similar thing with him. His is in Job 42, verse 2. And that, again, sums up almost the whole book of Job. And so you can let that thematic thing help interpret the rest of the book as well. Um, Ecclesiastes and Job kind of um, highlighting God's sovereignty and our submission to his sovereignty. The Proverbs are calls to action, response, and faith and obedience. So when you think of Proverbs, they're a call to action. There's something to do to act out in faith and wisdom. Job, Ecclesiastes, highlighting the sovereignty of God himself. And um, even working past what would have been practical wisdom of the day, because Job's friends are acting on normal processes, and God is showing Job he's doing more than, right? Pulling back the, the, the curtain. I don't know if that helps you in any I like things that help me interpret the whole. So if that helps you, um, those are not mine, by the way. In case you're just wondering if you need to know where those came from, that's the 40 questions by Plummer again. 40 questions by Plummer. That is a great resource that he included in the back. It's a very, very good book. Highly recommend it. Any question, wisdom literature. All right, I'm going to keep going. Um, how do we interpret poetry? So poetry. Poetry is common in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, frequently crosses over into other genres, including Proverbs, historical narrative, prophecy, Psalms. Normally, biblical authors write poetry for one of three reasons. Always good to know why a writer uses a certain technique or form of writing. So this is, this is valuable. If I was going to highlight something, these three would be great to highlight. So um, normally, biblical authors write poetry for one of three reasons. It makes the words more memorable. Makes the words more memorable. I don't know if y'all have been in Pastor Josh's study, but he said that multiple times when he's been teaching through those scriptures. He'll say, that's written in this form because they would have needed it as a memory device. Right? It was a device to help them remember. And so if you, if you remember him saying that, that was the reason why those scriptures were in that form um, is for memory. So sometimes it's for memory. Two, to express the author's emotions. Poetry is just a, a form of sharing emotion. So you get the author's emotions through poetry. And the last, the third, is to induce strong emotions from the reader. So one is to reveal the emotions of the author, and then the other one is to induce out of you a certain emotion. And so, so um, poetry is used. As in other languages, Hebrew and Greek poetry uses figurative or hyperbolic language, going over and beyond, grand language, greater than, symbolic images, that mnemonic or memory devices, mnemonic devices, such as, and here's some of the ones, acrostics, which are really hard to see if you can't see in Hebrew and Greek, right? <laughs> because the last letter of the line, of every line, forms a word. You can't see the word unless you can read Hebrew or Greek. And so um, repetition of similar sounds. So when you hear those similar sounds, it's creating repetition. Also, it would be there for memory or for emphasis. James actually uses that in Greek. So James, the book of James, uses sounds almost in a, in a way that's repetitious. And then various types of parallelism. So those are just some of the tools that in poetry that would be used that you would want to at least be aware of or recognize that they're being used. Um, the fact that we cannot see them, right? We don't, most of us are not going to be reading our text in Greek or Hebrew. So we don't get to see those or hear them the way that the original reader would have heard or seen the text. And so we're pretty dependent on the study Bible, right? I think Nathan mentioned ESV study Bible last week. That's a great tool and resource. An ESV study Bible will highlight for you when that's happening. 
so that you can then interpret it rightly, right? Because usually those tools are there either, again, memory or emphasis. And emphasis is going to point to meaning, and that's what you want to interpret. So again, a, a, a study Bible, ESV study Bible, would be extremely helpful. Um, you may also notice, too, in your Bible, if you didn't have a study Bible and you're just wondering, you know, this passage all of a sudden shows up in the midst of your reading and you're like, that sounds different, right? That sounds different than. A lot of times those poetry pieces um, stand out because the person who's put together the scriptures will indent them, right? And the spacing helps you realize something's different about this passage in the midst of this text, you know? And so um, that also helps you to know that person who's put together that Bible is highlighting that piece for you, almost letting you recognize that something's different. You need to check into that because it's set apart. It's set apart. So sometimes the person who puts the Bible together also helps you to kind of see something's different about that passage. Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right. Um, so how do we interpret poetry? Um, so we, we already talked about how it's lost in English translations. So we need those tools like the ESV study Bible or just being able to identify when the text changes like through spacing or grouping or set apart. Uh, the second one is poetry is rarely intended to be interpreted literally. That's extremely important. We want to know what it means. So it's not literally. So poetry is not to be literal, but it rather, again, points to general principles, general principles, uh, and, and or means to evoke an emotional response from the readers. And then last there, to interpret poetic language in light of other scripture. And as we've said over and over, while also allowing the emotions of the biblical poetry, and I think it's supposed to say not to prevent us from being too abstract or clinical in how we formulate biblical doctrines and principles. So we don't want to lose it, but we also want to make sure we're rightly interpreting. Any questions on poetry? So we've gone through apocalyptic, wisdom, and poetry. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Parables. Whew, something we know about. All right, you know, because uh, <laughs> I don't know about you. There's a little familiarity with parables, right? So I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you love being over there in the apocalypse. Uh, so uh, great. So uh, parables are, are good. Um, so, what, so parables are biblical parables are short, normally fictitious stories that illustrate a spiritual principle and this is the key. If you're going to underline a word, this is the word I would underline by way of comparison with earthly examples. So you're getting a spiritual principle with an earthly example and it's being compared to it. Like or as, right? It's like this. So if you want to know what a parable is, you got to realize that almost 100% of the time a parable is a comparison. If you can identify the comparison you're going to be able to rightly interpret the meaning. So underlying comparison, because that is really key. Um, approximately one-third of Jesus' teaching is in the form of parables, and normally in the, they illustrate kingdom priorities and ethics. So he's trying to compare, right, this kingdom with the kingdom to come, or the priorities, right, of kingdom priorities with those of the world as it is today priorities or ethics. Um, we've been working through Mark as a life group and the many parables through Mark. And man, it's just over and over because Mark, he wants you to see that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so the parables are there to show you then what does the kingdom of God look like when it comes near? When it comes near, this is what the kingdom of God begins to look like. Or this is not what the kingdom of God looks like, right? It's very, very powerful. So parables help help to see the kingdom of God rightly. Um, next one is identify the main point or points rather than getting bogged down in the details of the story. Um, you might be saying, but I like the story, you know? And parables are interesting and they're good, um, but you don't want to lose the point of the parable 
with the story. It's like a good illustration in a sermon. A good illustration is one that highlights the meaning of the text, and you walk away with the illumination of the text. A bad illustration is one where you walk away and you're telling all your friends about the story, and they go, well, what's it? what did it have to do with the sermon? I'm not really sure, I just like that story, you know? <laughs> you lost it, you know? So don't lose the meaning of the parable with the story, but let the story emphasize and illuminate the main point, right? That's what it's there to do. So a parable is there to illuminate the main point. Um, and usually the main point, just so you know, it answers the question, why is he saying this parable? Why is he saying this parable? So the main point is, why is he saying this? Um, all right, the next one for interpreting parables is look for recurring imagery in Jesus's parables. Look for the recurring imagery. So one of those images, um, and um, Plummer uses the word stock images because they're just the images he normally uses when he's talking in parables. But one of those um, is shepherd and sheep. We all know that shepherd and sheep is a stock image, right? Um, the key to those, though, in those images that he's using is making sure you're understanding them as the original readers would have understood those images, right? So you want to you think about those images or those pictures that the writer is using, if it's shepherds or sheep, as they would have thought of shepherds and sheep, not how we think of shepherds and sheep. So that can sometimes get distorted, right? Um, I'll give you a quick little story because it's kind of funny. But um, I was an English teacher overseas, and so I had a, I actually, I didn't have my class that day. So Cindy and I met overseas. She was also an English teacher. We taught at two different schools, and she was out sick, so I went to teach her class one day. So I had her class that day. And so um, when we would, when I would teach, I liked using stories from the Bible. So I used parables a lot. And um, one that day was the, the, the lost sheep. Thought this would be good, right? Because the people group I worked among were shepherds of sheep. In fact, at one time, there, was more, there, were, more, there were more sheep in Kyrgyzstan than anywhere else in the world other than New Zealand. A lot of sheep, still a lot of sheep. So uh, still shepherds, believe it or not. So I lived in a village, so, um, but the way they did shepherding now is that everybody has sheep, but they have a designated shepherd family. That shepherd family is responsible for everybody else's sheep. And so they'll watch over them, guard them, protect them, take them to the summer pastures. When they bring them back, the expectations, they come back healthy, right? Healthy. So I tell them this story. Hey, here's a shepherd, 99 sheep over here, goes after the one, finds him, puts him on his shoulder, gets back, celebrates. They're all quiet. I'm like, is that a good, is that a good shepherd? They're like, that's a terrible shepherd. <laughs> I was like, what? And he's like, why would a shepherd leave 99 sheep to go after one? He's like, if that was my, like, that's our livelihood. If he loses the livelihood of the village, like he's like, it's shame. Like you wouldn't go after one sheep to leave the 99. I'm like, uh-oh. You know, like, I'm like, what am I gonna do with this? I can't say, well, God's like a shepherd. <laughs> you know, like that didn't work. So I was like, uh-oh. So I just said, okay, how about this? I was like, what if, what if you were the sheep? And one night you're out there, one day you're out there and you get lost on the side of the mountain because there's a lot of wolves in Kyrgyzstan, by the way, also. A lot of wolves. Um, and um, I said, one night, it starts getting dark. You're looking for the other sheep. They're gone. No sheep, no shepherd. You're vulnerable. You're sitting out there. Time goes by. All of a sudden, you're picked up. You're placed on the, on the shoulders of your shepherd. You're carried back to the flock. There's rejoicing. They all sat there and like, that's a good shepherd. That's a, that's a good shepherd right there. You know, like, okay, all right. So I say that just as a way of, it's just a good story. But also understand the imagery, right? Understand the image, but understand it rightly so you can rightly apply it too. So like understand the image of the, of the, of the text. Um, the last one, allow the context of where the parable occurs in the gospel to help you understand the, boy, the point that Jesus was making. 
And again, it's just that understanding the literary context, where it is in the story or where it is in the gospel, because a lot of times the parables were in response to the Pharisees. And he's making a comparison or a contrast, right, to those Pharisees or to the disciples. And so just understanding what's around it can, again, help you to interpret it rightly. So understand the context. Let me just give you a couple other little things that help you with parables. If it helps you, great. If it doesn't, don't worry. They're just not in the notes. So I'm just, you can put them down on the side. Um, though comparison is always the point, many times a strong contrast will be used within a parable, pointing to the comparison. So there could be a strong contrast. Two, um, always there's characters normally within a parable. Know who the characters are. It's always just good to know your characters. Um, another principle is quoted words, which is dialogue, right? So when you see quoted words in a story, they're important because the narrator has let the person speak from the story. When the person speaks from the story, it's usually for emphasis or meaning. So quoted words are also really helpful. Um, the last thing is, uh, no, two more things. One is sometimes in a parable, the amount of space given to a particular theme can also lend to that's most important in the parable. Just space, amount of paper. So if you got that much writing and that much of it is space taken up with this, that's probably important, you know? So space can also be a determining factor for meaning. La this is it. This is the last little, little piece of nugget here. And, um, and this is gonna contradict what I just said about space. But this one trumps space, okay? A lot of times in parables, the last thing said is the most important thing. A lot of times in parables, the last thing said is the most important thing. It's almost like it finishes off with, this is why. And whether it says this is why or not, it's the last thing is a very important piece. So in fact, you could have this much space taken up with a comparison and that tells you the why. That one last phrase tells you everything, that, the meaning of all that just happened. So just, just a couple of extras there. All right, that's parables. Those are fun. I love parables. Not everybody. Jesus used parables, many, many parables. Some did not understand parables, right? Many did not use them for that, and then he would explain many of those parables. So um, as you do interpret parables, do it in faith. All right, epistles. Most of the books of the New Testament are epistles written by apostles and others who are closely connected to apostles. Um, in fact, 27 books in the New Testament, 21 of them are epistles. Um, so majority of the New Testament. 27 books, 21 are epistles. Epistles are letters that were written to individuals. I don't have much time. Churches, groups, churches. Epistles can have main theme or themes, or they can be less thematic or more topical. But here's the kicker, and this is you can underline this one too. Epistles are intended to be didactic. They are there to teach, right? They are teaching something, addressing something, so didactic. So you might wanna underline that one. Um, that's why expository preachers love preaching par I mean, epistles because they're didactic. Um, so uh, let's, here's the principles. I'm gonna go a little bit quickly because I would love for us to get through the end here and I think we got 10 minutes. Um, understand the historical context of both the, oh, this is so important. Oh, so important for a puzzle. Understand the historical context of both the author and the recipients. That's just your historical context. Know the author, know who the recipients of this letter are. Uh, there's a couple ways you can do that. Um, read the whole epistle multiple times. It's amazing how much you learn by just reading and read it in totality. They're not very long. They're letters. They were meant to be read in one sitting. Uh, my, my son has been at basic training. We're going to see him graduate on Friday. And so we're excited about that. But we've, he's wrote more letters than he's ever written in his whole entire life. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and so we're writing him letters. He's writing us letters. We love these letters. You know, we usually only read the first sentence. And then a week goes by, we'll read the next sentence. And then the next week goes by, we'll read the next sentence. No, we don't do it, man. We are reading them things, man. We, like, we read it all. We read it again. We try to interpret. You know, we're like, what is he saying? I don't know what he's saying. You know, who taught him how to write? So, uh, you know, homeschool mom right there. No, uh, no, but it's good. No, it's good, man. So, but, but it's the same way with these letters, right? Same way with these letters. 
You don't just do it, right? You read them. They're a letter to a particular people at a particular situation, a particular time, in a particular context. So to get all that, you got to read the letter, right? In its totality, multiple times. And you start to learn a lot about the author. You learn a lot about the recipients, even from just reading the letter. Another way you can get information, because it's super important, is ESV Study Bible. Study Bible, super helpful, or a New Testament introduction, right? Any of those kinds of things will help you just to go, who is this writing to whom? And so it'll help set the historical context. And that will help you, help you tremendously to get to meaning and interpretation rightly. Um, break the epistle into units. Um, so then once you've read it in its totality, it's got to get a little smaller to start looking at it in, in, in passages. So often in paragraphs, meaning that keep, the, keep a one thought together. Usually paragraphs are one thought, right? Change thought, go to a new paragraph. Change thought, go to a new paragraph. It's the same with writing in epistles. Keep the thoughts together. Uh, helps you understand how each section relates to the whole. A really good technique for that is write it out. Believe it or not, if you start writing it out, you start seeing the thought process of the writer. It just helps you to write along with him. I love writing out the text. If I teach anything, if I preach anything, I always are writing out my text because I just want to see, see how he's writing this text. So that's helpful. Um, look for key verses as well as words or phrases that either reoccur or recur or seem to carry significant importance. Again, I think Nathan mentioned this. We can't, we don't have bold type. We can't italicize it, right? So what do you do if you want to emphasize a word or a phrase? You repeat it. That's the way they would emphasize. So if you see something that's repeated, it's important and it probably is drawing you toward the meaning. So uh, repetition, and then just significant words. Those words that are weighty and carry meaning and are heavy, just identify those. And it's really important to not just identify them, understand them. Take a minute to better understand those. Again, commentary can be helpful or study Bible. All right. Um, understand the logic of, oh, this is good too. Man, Nathan did a good job. Um, understand the logic of sentences, then paragraphs, then larger sections like chapters then the entire epistle. So good to remember, if I take this one sentence and I take it over here and I try to interpret that one sentence, I can go a lot of different ways with that one sentence, right? But if I take that one sentence and I put it into the sentences around it, I get better understanding of what's actually going on there. And if I take that into a paragraph or a chapter or the whole book, epistle, letter, now I've got a better understanding of what that actually is saying, right? If I take it over here alone, man, I can go a lot of places. If I put it in the context, now it's in the literary context, I can get to meaning, the right meaning for that, that sentence. Man, there's, I just tell you, lots of people take a sentence out and make it say or mean something it was never intended to mean keep it in its context. It will help you to rightly understand God's word so you can rightly live it in God's world, right? Okay, um, apply many of these same principles to groups of epistles written by the same author. Same author is gonna use a lot of the same techniques so you can apply them across the board. Um, all right, Whew. that's genres. Six minutes, all right, six minutes. Take care of meaning and interpretation and application. Awesome, all right. So let's, let's go quickly in this last section. Let's see if we can get it done in six minutes. Um, any questions before we move on? Good. All right. So <laughs> I'm not going to let you ask. So, <laughs> oh, just kidding. Um, all right. Meaning of interpretation. Um, oh, man, so important. This, it, man, this is so, so important. We've learned all these techniques, but this is so important to understanding meaning and rightly interpreting the Word of God because... One of the things you may have heard if you go to a Bible study or you go to your group and you say, man, let's just discuss, you know, what, is this, what does this mean to you? Well, what about you? What does it mean to you? Or what does it mean to you? And what we're going to see is there's really only what? Primarily one meaning to a text, right? Now, multiple ways to apply that, but one meaning, right? So dangerous to sit there and ask that question, what does it mean to you? It's better to say, what does this passage mean and how can we apply this to our lives? Because then we can talk about application, discuss it. 
But first, we got to understand meaning to apply. So that that's a critical piece. That's what we're going to talk about. In the field of biblical hermeneutics, there is a debate about who determines the meaning of the text. Some argue that the author or authors decide what the text means, right? The author decides. Um, that's called authorial intention or authorial intent. Others argue that the reader decides what the text means, and that's called reader response. I, the reader, get to determine what this means, or the one who wrote it is writing it for a particular purpose and meaning. Understand? Uh, I think Nathan mentioned like the Constitution of the United States. He uses that illustration. Um, those who drafted the Constitution, right? They're the ones who determine the meaning. Then there's those who then determine how to apply the Constitution into life, right? We don't go back and try to determine the meaning of the Constitution. That was determined by the drafters. We then work on how to apply that constitutional rights into life today, right? We do the same with text. So listen, Christians believe that every word of Scripture is duly authored. Man, this is what he did so good last week. The Holy Spirit inspired each human author in such a way the Bible is simultaneously the written words of God and the written words of man. Furthermore, the purpose of the Bible is then to communicate God's truth to human readers in written form. For these reasons, most Christians reject the reader response. What does it mean to me? and affirm authorial intention, right? The drafters of the Constitution chose, right? Who's our author? God and his appointed one that he spiritually guided, right? As, we, as Nathan so well said last week, um, those are our authors. They determine then the meaning of the text, which is God's truth to us. Our job is then to discover it. So throughout history, Christians have debated whether a text can have more than one meaning. So that's what we're talking about. Can it have more than one? There are two extreme positions on this. One extreme claims that the, every text has one literal meaning, and there's no place for any additional layers of meaning. Just one, addition, one, one meaning. Um, the extreme case of that um, would look at everything as just historical narrative. This is just writing in like a historical textbook, right? Everything is to be taken literally. It's just historical text. But we know the biblical writers were writing that historical account with purpose, right? And using different forms of writing to get across that purpose. And so we miss, even actually points to Jesus when we only take it as a historical document. So it's like, that's over here. The other one, right, the other extreme claims that a text can mean many different things. Um, I'm just going to turn that dinger off. Um, the author extreme claims that a text can mean many different things with some meanings more literal and some more spiritual. This is on the other side of this. It's like it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And that's where we got in trouble with allegory, right? So even during the to, um, Middle Ages, where everything was seen as allegory, well, then there's this hidden meaning in everything, and you got to find the hidden meaning. It's kind of like pull up the carpet. There it is. Ah, oh, we found it. And only certain people who had special knowledge or were holy enough or you know, knew enough could figure out the meaning of the text, right? Those are the ones over here. So those are the extremes of it. So here's what, here's what he says. Our goal as interpreters is to find whatever meaning is already, we don't have to determine a meaning or define a meaning, it's already there present in the text. So our goal as interpreters is to find whatever meaning is already present in the text. Often there is only just one straightforward meaning, right? Many times. But there are, at times, layers of meaning, right? Next page. For example, uh, a few Old Testament passages are allegorical. Really good to know when they are. There's a few of those. Again, study Bible helpful. But for more common, more common than allegory is this idea of typology. 
And that's a really good word and a really good meaning. When, the, when an Old Testament passage is intended by the author to foreshadow realities that are only fully understood in the light of Jesus, right? So all of a sudden, now we see like it's, there's passages of Scripture that were meaning what they were meant to mean, but also pointing to what would be in Jesus fulfilled, pointing to what Jesus would fulfill. Here's what he says, a good rule of thumb. Allegory tries too hard to find hidden meanings in mundane details, while typology focuses on understanding intended meanings and biblical concepts ultimately fulfilled in Christ. As interpreters, we are not looking for hidden truths in the Bible intended only for the really spiritual readers, but rather asking the Holy Spirit to reveal truths that have always been there and are intended to be known by all believers. I think you've probably experienced this with Josh Powell's teaching, right? If you've been in any of his Bible studies on Wednesday nights or have you listened to any of his sermons, um, you will you will see constantly a connection to Jesus, right? It's this, this is pointing forward or pointing to Christ, right? The fulfillment of these things that were shared here was ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus, right? And those writers were writing for their day and in the fulfillment of those uh, in Christ to come. Does that make sense? That was a lot really fast. Um, let me say a couple more things um, upon, uh, on that same note. Um, one of the questions we should ask as interpreters of the scripture is this question. What was the purpose, intent, or meaning of the inspired biblical writer? What was the purpose, intent, or meaning of the inspired biblical writer? We do not create the meaning Rather, we seek to discover the meaning that has been placed there by the author. One last note on typology, and then we'll move down to application very, very quickly. Oh, gosh, 733. I'm like, it's going to turn off, isn't it? We literally have... Six minutes, okay, and then it shuts down, guys. It shuts down. So let me just see if I can finish this out real fast. But I like this illustration that Nathan used on typology when it comes to seeing what's already there. Um, and he used this picture, and if it helps you, it's like a dimmer switch on a lights. You know, if you have those in your house or if you've ever seen those, you can turn up the lights, you can turn down the lights, right? He said when the lights are low, right, you can see certain things. You know, you might not bump, you don't want to bump over them, but, you know, just enough light that you can see things. As you move the light up, um, it begins, you begin to see things, right, more clearly. But the things that you see were still there even in the dark, right? It di they weren't there. They didn't, they didn't become after the light shone. It just revealed what was already there. That's typology in a, in a very similar way. Um, he says, nothing new, just more clarity, right? We read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, not seeing new things that were not there, but things that have always been there. It's just now we see them, Like right? The New Testament hit the dimmer switch up, right? And now we see clearly, right? Man, that revealed Jesus, right? That was revealing who he is. A um, couple warnings in there, but we're going to move forward. Um, we're going to move forward. Application interpretation, really fast. Um, effective, so <laughs> knowing what the meaning is and knowing how to apply it are two different things. So effective preachers and Bible teachers not only explain what the text means, but they show you various ways to apply that text to your life. Meaning, without application, um, that can lead to head knowledge, divorce from a heart knowledge. Application divorce from meaning is just spiritual help, advice, or religious life hacks. So here's six principles in closing tonight uh, for application, okay? Um, what we've just been talking about, a text can only mean what the author intended that text to mean. 
Okay, text can only mean what the author intended for that text to mean. Second, though a text can only mean what the author intended, there might be any number, as we were saying a while ago, of applications that can be drawn from the text. One meaning, multiple applications. While some, number three, while some applications apply to all people, like obeying God's moral commands, other applications might vary from person to person depending upon their particular circumstance. Example, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? And as that comes to mind or heart and you read that passage, something may, in me, in my personal walk with my wife, all of a sudden come up, am I loving my wife in a sacrificial manner in which Christ loved the church? And then a particular instance comes up this past week where I go, I didn't sacrifice for her. In fact, I was pretty, I took more than gave, right? So that's a personal application, right? It went from general application, right? This is the general application, to a very personal incident in my life that I need to go back now and repent, ask forgiveness for, and show my great love for her, right? Personal. So it can be multiple applications, and then it gets very specific to your circumstances. Number four, but it's all in line with the general principle. Does that make sense? And the meaning. The text's meaning plus our particular context provide the boundaries. Ugh. We don't go way off for the potential range of appropriate applications. So when you think about application, it's going to be dependent upon the meaning of the text and the particular applications to your life. Those kind of guard you in, in applying the general principles. Uh, we should never confuse our applications of the text with the meaning of the text, or we make the Bible primarily about our felt needs rather than God's written revelation of himself and his will to humanity, right? That becomes about us. We begin to go to the text looking for us instead of looking for him. Trying to validate our ways instead of learning his ways. Letting his ways guide us and not our ways determining the text. Okay, last one. Whew. Amen. Our application should always aim toward faithfully obeying, here's a few things, the cultural mandate. Right? Those who are right there in Genesis have dominion, be fruitful, multiply. Right? If you're going to look at general big context, you know, when you start to apply something, it can be applied looking at the biggest pieces of context of the scriptures. First and second greatest commandment love God, love others. Right? How is this going to help me love God, love others? How is it going to help me con continue to work to redeem the world God's created and be faithful and multiply in it? Um, make disciples and be his witness, right? The last one, be his witness. So as we look at the biggest picture of application, how is it, how is this scripture help me love God, love one another, make disciples, and be his witnesses, right? And be faithful and obedient to the text.